The pale horse is described in the 7th and 8th verses of the 6th chapter of Revelation. When he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. The pale horse represents the condition of the church when it's in a state of spiritual death and potentially even the spiritually diseased state that precedes death. This condition was produced by the red and the black horse states that preceded it. As I've said several times already in these sessions, the condition of the present horse was created by the horses that preceded it. So the pale horse state that the church was in at this period in its history was a product of the red and black horse states that went before it. Church went from a state of carnality and conflict under the red horse state to a condition of spiritual darkness under the black horse state and now to a condition of spiritual disease and death. If we were to place this in a period in history, I would probably start around the 600s AD and take this out, span this out into potentially the 1500s AD. The 600s AD is the point at which the Babylonish church began to rise to its greatest level of power, especially in regards to its relationship with the civil systems. The groundwork for some of its rule over the kingdoms, particularly in Europe, was laid during this period of time and really began to accelerate in the next couple of centuries that followed this. As an ending point, the reason I'm placing it in the 1500s is because that's when the Reformation movement truly began to take life to the degree that it was able to break loose from that system and establish churches of their own. Prior to the 1500s, the Reformation had been going on throughout the history of the church in some form or another. We probably wouldn't call it the Reformation in the sense of what we think of in terms of Luther and Zwingli and Huss and others, but there had been a resistance movement going on all throughout the history of the church. There never was a period in church history when there was 100% agreement with the system that was in power. There was almost always groups, most of them very small, that were in resistance against certain doctrines or against the order or the immorality that had crept into that order during the papal rule especially. Wycliffe, as we talked about in the past, was operating almost two centuries before what we think of as the Reformation truly took off. And the Waldensians had been operating, the Cathari and other groups that had been working through the centuries prior to this, but none of them were able to break free of that system and actually found a new church that could exist for any length of time. There were times that different ones left the church or even went into hiding and had what you might consider secret operations that were going on in terms of church meetings and gatherings, but most of the time, if not all the time, they were rooted out and either forced to recant or murdered for their beliefs. The Waldensians are a prime example of that. I've told you before that during one period, a bulk of that group was in the Alps and other mountain ranges in that area of Europe and were systematically hunted down by the civil arm of the church and murdered not only in the sense of the adults, but even in several historical accounts, they took the children and the little babies and threw them down the mountainsides. So there was a brutal reaction to any kind of a resistance operation that was going on during that time. And there wasn't what you'd call any kind of a long-term establishment of any kind of a church that was able to stand that was actually in resistance against that beastly power and that Babylonish church. 
That changed with the Reformation period. During the Reformation period, especially with the work of Luther and others, the Reformers were able to break loose from that church and actually establish churches that many of which, in some form at least, are still in existence today. What's a strange footnote to that is the fact that one of the main things that caused the church to fall away, it's marrying itself to the civil power or looking for protection and provision from the civil power, was continued on to some extent with the Reformation movement. You may not have thought about that, but one of the main things that allowed for Luther to be able to get established and that gave him protection from the Roman Catholic Church was the fact that the Germanic princes were in agreement with some of the things that he was saying and wanted to break loose from the influence of the Catholic Church for whatever political or personal reasons. There's a variety of different things that were the motives behind that, but they actually provided him protection. There's no doubt that that was part of God's intent, but at the same time, isn't it strange that that's the very thing that we would look at as one of the primary causes of the church falling away is that they entered into a relationship with the civil powers. Luther's breaking free from the Catholic Church and surviving that separation was in great part due to the fact that the civil powers shielded him from the persecution of that church. So I would place the end of the Pale Horse period during what you might think of as the height of the Reformation in the 1500s, during the time of Luther and Zwingli and some of the others that rose from the late 1400s into the 1500s, the work of William Tyndall, who translated a great portion of scripture into the English and was burned at the stake at Vilvord for doing so. Even though there was great persecution and even death associated with this period, those were the signs of life that demonstrated that the people of God were coming to life again after that pale horse state. There was life in the doctrine. There was life in the order that hadn't been there under that dark age Babylonish church system. Now, it wasn't full life yet. The church during the Reformation period didn't come back to a place where the life of the church was at the level where the spirit was operating in its fullness or where doctrine had reached the level of primitive purity. By that, I mean the purity of the doctrine of the early church. We are still, to some extent, striving for that right now. The power of the spirit has come back to a great extent in a way that the reformers would not have experienced at the level we've experienced in the last century plus, but the work of the restoration of doctrine is still going on. Some pieces of that doctrine were restored during the period of the Reformation. Some core foundational pieces of that doctrine were restored during the period of the Reformation. The understanding, at least in a very simplistic sense, of what faith represents versus works in terms of the ritualistic works of those Catholic and Orthodox churches. But the fullness of the restoration of the word was far from being accomplished. The fullness of the restoration of the spirit was far from being accomplished. We had far greater leaps forward in terms of both of those elements being restored in the 20th century, and we're still in the process of restoration. The church has not come back to a white horse state yet. We still have things in terms of doctrine and order that are going to have to be restored before the church can come back to a white horse state. But we're not in a pale horse state. We're certainly not in a black horse state, as I said last time we talked on this subject. If we have any relation to the red horse state, it's in the sense that we have not come to a state of complete unity. We haven't got all the carnality and the conflict out of the church yet. Whether that means that we're actually working in a red horse state or whether that would mean that the red horse condition of the church world around us still is influencing us, or if we're outside all of those elements, but we're not quite yet back in a white horse state, would be up for discussion. 
but there are elements of the influence of those horses that still affect the body of Jesus Christ that have to be worked out in order for the power and purity of a white horse church to be restored. So I would end the period of the pale horse in some sense around the period of the Reformation. But again, as I said in one of our earlier sessions, the influence of the pale horse is still very much alive in this day. The influence of the black horse is still very much alive in this day. The influence of the red horse is still very much alive even today. There are churches today that are in each of those states. There are churches today that are still operating in those states. The Babylonian church is certainly still in a pale horse state. There are churches that are in a black horse state that might have some life, but they're in a pretty darkened condition in terms of the truth and the restoration of order that they need to have the fullness of life that we're striving towards in restoring a white horse state. There's churches that are in a red horse state right now in this world. In fact, I would say a great bulk of the Protestant denominations are in a red horse state. Unfortunately, a great bulk of the Pentecostal denominations, of the tongue-speaking people, are in a red horse state. There's still a lot of division and carnality that goes on. In fact, in many ways, you could say that there's a blended condition going on right now in the churches. There's negative qualities of almost all of those three horses that are affecting the church. There is a terrible degree of immorality in Christendom, in the leadership in Christendom in this present day. And though there always has been immorality when human beings are concerned, there seems to have been an acceleration of that in the last century or so, which I think is a sign of the times. We could talk about that in a different type of a Bible study if we were looking at some of the signs of the end times in a more detailed way. I think one of those is that there will be an increase, not just in immorality in a general sense, we've certainly seen that, but there'll be an increase in terms of immorality in the leadership of what is nominally, partially, or even, unfortunately, genuinely, the people of God. That's a sign of the times that are coming, that type of a fall, when the stars fall from heaven, great powers fall down from their position of religious authority and influence. And certainly we've seen an increase in that in this last period. So the influence of all three of those horses is still alive in the church world right now. And what I often refer to as Christendom, I just mean by that the general church world, whether we would include all of those pieces and parts in Babylon or otherwise, it's the general span of what is covered by the name Christianity, much of which doesn't even belong under the covering of that name because it's already apostatized and compromised itself. So by Christendom, I mean the general church that calls itself Christian, whatever denomination or sect that it might include itself in. But in regards to the end of the prominence and power of the pale horse, that began to wane with the birth of the Reformation because the life of the Word of God was injected into that dying system. And out of it came individuals who left that fallen system and began other works outside of that monolithic church. Now, some of those works have slid right back into the darkness. And unfortunately, some have even slid right back into a state of complete spiritual death. But out of each era of Reformation has come a remnant that is moving towards restoration. We are part of that remnant people that traces our lineage not just back to an event in the history of the church in the last few centuries or even the last millennia, but all the way back to the early church. The thread of life that ran down through the history of the church age that we connect ourselves back to doesn't just go back to the point at which the Reformation broke free from the Catholic Church or when the Holiness Movement rose or when the Pentecostal Movement rose. Those are benchmark points in history that we might trace back elements of truth or order that were restored. But our true historical lineage does not go back to one of those events. 
It passes through many of those events, but it reaches all the way back to the early church. When we're studying the symbolism of this color that's described as pale in the King James Version, the first thing you need to do is realize that this color isn't pale in the sense of what we might think, like a chalky white or a light, washed-out white color. This comes from the Greek word chloros, where we get the word chlorophyll or chlorine. Chlorophyll is the green pigment that's in certain plants and algae for that matter. So chloros means green. It's usually in a sense of something that's pale green or even kind of a grayish green. The idea that that color communicates is something that's sickly or something that's diseased. In Greek literature outside of the Bible, this color is used in numerous examples to refer to the face or the appearance of somebody that's sick or even to the way a dead corpse looks. I do think that the symbolism of this particular word in this context is probably referring to something that's in a diseased state that is either dying or is already fully dead. I personally don't strictly interpret it as something that's entirely dead. It could also represent something that is dying, but dying from a terminal disease, dying from a disease that there's no coming back from. So some part of the church that might be described in this way is completely and fully dead already. But I think the potential is there that this may also represent the fact that any part of the church that wasn't fully dead, at the very least, was in a state of disease that was terminal, meaning there was no possibility of being healed of this. You know, when you're in a black horse state, somebody can shine the light on you and you can come out of a black horse state. So there's a potential reversal of a black horse condition. When you're in a red horse state, you can come to a place of purity in terms of the carnality that might be going on. You can come to a place of peace in terms of the conflict that might be going on and get out of that red horse state. But if you have terminal disease, it's going to take a far greater power to remove that condition or to heal you of that condition. This isn't just death. This is death and hell. Death is the rider, but hell is following with this rider. In order to correctly understand what death and hell represents here, you have to look at the two Greek words that are translated death and hell. The Greek word that's translated death is thanatos. It's the word that's most often used in the Greek to refer to death. It doesn't just refer to death, though. It can also be used to refer to a disease state, usually in the sense that they're in a state where death is certain. It's a terminal disease that without a miracle, they're going to die. They may not be in the grave yet. They're headed toward the grave. And that goes right along with the idea that hell is following after death here because the word that's translated hell is the word Hades, which represents the grave. As you know, there's three different words that are translated hell in the New Testament, the King James. Tartaru is used once by Peter. But the other two words that are commonly translated hell in the New Testament are Hades and Gehenna. Those mean two very different things. Hades represents the place of the dead. Now, the New Testament writers didn't mean that in the sense of Greek mythology, where it's a place where you've got to pass over the river Styx and be there among the dead and so on. They just used that word as a loan word, given that they were writing in Greek and wanted to communicate the same idea that the word Sheol had in the Old Testament, the word for the grave, the place of the dead. The word Gehenna represents a process of destruction or being destroyed. It can represent a condition of persecution or distress and great trouble. And it's used in a number of different ways in the Bible. This is not the word Gehenna. This is not talking about persecution or distress or difficulty. This is the word for the grave. So that's important in properly interpreting this. The idea seems to be that death 
is followed by the grave. Now, that sounds strange because we think if you're dead, you're in the grave. But I think that might add to the fact that the use of the word thanatos here is probably intended to mean some of this disease that in a state of dying that will eventually end up in the grave. It'll eventually end up in the place of the dead. There's some good support for using thanatos that way. Even though it is the word that usually represents death, it is used sometimes to represent pestilence or disease. In the Septuagint, which, as you know, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It was made in the centuries just preceding the birth of Christ. In at least 30 different times in the Septuagint, when they were looking for a Greek word to replace the Hebrew word deber, which means pestilence or disease of some kind, they chose this word thanatos. The Hebrew word deber means pestilence, not death. And thanatos usually means death, but as I said earlier, it can also mean someone that's in a terminal state or someone that's diseased or sickly that's dying. They're on their way to being completely dead. So as I said, in the Septuagint, multiple times they use the word thanatos, which is the word that's here, to replace the Hebrew word deber, which represents pestilence. So that seems to be a support for using the word thanatos potentially to represent pestilence or disease in some cases. In the parallel passage to this, in Ezekiel 14, the 21st through the 23rd verses, there's a list of four judgments that God passes on Jerusalem that seem to be a perfect parallel with these judgments here that the pale horse is exercising. They're listed there as sword, famine, beasts, and pestilence. Notice pestilence instead of death. In these two verses describing the pale horse, there's two times this word Thanatos is used. One in the beginning when it says that his name is death, and then in the latter part of the verse where it says that of those four instruments that were used to kill the people of God, one of them is that they killed them with death. Now that would seem like a strange thing to say. It's almost redundant, isn't it, to say you kill somebody with death. So it's pretty likely, at least in the last of the two examples, that the word Thanatos would mean pestilence which is exactly what it says here in Ezekiel. And by the way, in Ezekiel, that is the Hebrew word deber that I just told you the Septuagint replaced with thanatos over 30 times. So in Ezekiel 14, it describes these four elements as sword, famine, beasts, and pestilence. And again, if this Greek word is intended to communicate the same idea as that Hebrew word deber, probably in this description of the pale horse, the idea is some that's diseased. Now, that may not apply to the first example of Thanatos when it says his name is death. That may just mean death in its most direct sense. But it certainly seems to apply to the second example where it says that they killed them with death. That's almost certainly they killed them with pestilence, which would, as I've said several times here, harmonize with the statement in Ezekiel 14, the list in Ezekiel 14. This may seem hard to believe, but disease has caused the deaths of far more people than even violence. When you compare deaths caused by disease to deaths caused by war, diseases claim far more people. Disease is far deadlier even than outright warfare. I had read some time back that during the Civil War, there were more Union and Confederate soldiers that died from disease than were killed in battle. Even though there was a huge number killed in battle, more soldiers died from disease than from battle. From 1918 to 1919, the great influenza epidemic was going on. During that time, 30 million people died due to influenza. And it was during that same approximate period of time that World War I was going on. The estimated number of deaths of soldiers who died in battle during World War I was about 8.5 million. 
That means that around that same period, more than three times, almost four times, as many people were killed by one disease than were killed by that massive war between all the multiple countries that were involved. So disease is a terrible enemy in terms of the death that it causes. And this church was in either a disease state headed toward a certain death that there was no coming back from, or this church was in a state of complete death already. The disease that had infiltrated the church was false doctrine and a corrupt order and the immorality of the leadership that was an expression of that corrupt order. You know, when you have a corrupt order, when individuals who are not truly called are holding positions of power, there's always great potential for corruption. In fact, if somebody's not truly called, what's their reason for being in the position of power? Either they bought that position, which obviously shows you that they're a corrupt individual, or they politicked or manipulated their way in some other way into that position, which again is an expression that they don't belong in a position of power. Quite often these leaders want to be in a position of power so they could have material luxury and domination over other individuals, and quite often that kind of a control and dictatorial degree of influence leads towards immorality. It's one of the dangers of power is that it does corrupt. It doesn't have to corrupt, but it tends towards corruption. And the only way that you're going to be able to have a position of power and not be corrupted is if there is a maintenance of purity that counterbalances the potential of that power to corrupt. And the only possibility of that happening is if God is behind you, if God is not on your side. And if God didn't put you in that position, you've got a tremendous likelihood that you're going to fall into corruption, whether immorality or political corruption or in taking advantage of individuals financially or otherwise. The likelihood of that is dramatically increased by an individual who isn't called to do the job to begin with. This false doctrine and this order that had become so tainted and corrupted by political machinations and by materialistic greed and by perversions and immorality didn't end with the mother church. Unfortunately, that contagion of that disease spread to the daughters that eventually left home. The sad historical truth is that many of the churches that broke free from the Babylonish church had so much of Babylon still in them after they broke free, they continued to carry on Babylon's practices in many ways. They continued to carry on many of Babylon's doctrines, and some of them still teach some of the core doctrines of that Babylonish church that were never a part of the scripture, that were established by councils of men and established by philosophical wrangling rather than by the anointing of the Spirit of God on the mind of an individual. And some of those churches carried on Babylon's order in a way that perpetuated the immorality and corruption forward generationally. From a symbolic standpoint, what might death and hell represent here? Well, one of the views is that it represents the ecclesiastical power and the civil power. In other words, death is the spiritually dead or spiritually diseased religious power, and hell is the civil power that's following with that religious power, that's going along with the religious power. Like the description we see in Revelation 17, where it's describing the woman on the back of the beast. She's guiding that beast to some extent during that period. So in some sense, you might argue it's following with her. It's going with her. They're partners in what they're doing. You could see why someone would make the case that would be a good interpretation. But part of the strength of that interpretation would be dependent on how you use that Greek word that's translated hell here. If that was the word Gehenna, I might lean more towards that interpretation because it would seem to convey the idea that there was a spiritually dead church that was working with a civil system, representing hell, 
that was bringing persecution and torment on the people of God. But the word hell here is not the word you would use for persecution and torment. As I said a few minutes ago, it's not Gehenna, it's Hades. So this represents the grave, being in the place of the dead. Though I'm not going to debate the merits of interpreting this as the religious and civil powers, I think that it's probably more likely that this is representing the fact that there is a spiritually diseased and dying church that can only produce a state of death and that will put you in a spiritual grave. In other words, the church was in a state of disease and death, and all that that church could do is put other people in a state of death and end up burying them in a spiritual grave, putting people in the place of the dead. You would be spiritually dead and buried if you stayed in that church long enough to let them affect you and influence you with their thinking. The rider is named death, and I think that means that this rider is death personified. It's like pointing at it and saying that is what it means to be spiritually dead. You look at the leadership of that church, their teachings, their order, that's what it means to be spiritually dead. They have that name on them. The Bible refers to the false church as a harlot. Proverbs 2, 16 to 19 is an example of that, where it talks about the strange woman that you need to be delivered from, and from the stranger which flattereth with her words, which forsaketh the guide of her youth. And forsaking the guide of her youth is when she turned away from Christ and the apostolic ministry and went her own way. And forgetteth the covenant of her God, that's when she began to make changes to the new covenant and introduced her traditions and forgot what that covenant truly was. For her house inclineth, it goes down towards death, and her paths unto the dead. None that go unto her return again, neither take they hold of the paths of life. That by itself is a pretty dark statement to say that somebody that's lost in that false religious system can never return from it. And it's true if God does not touch their heart. It's true if God doesn't open their eyes. Nobody can come out that God does not cause to come out. Nobody can come out that God doesn't cause to hear his voice. If God does not make the call and he doesn't open their ears to the call, they will never be able to come out. God forbid that we follow her paths down unto the dead. The great promise to us that tells you there's a way out of that is the very fact that the message is going to go forth, come out of her, my people. The very system that it said nobody can ever return out of. That's because when the message goes forth, it has the power to reach those individuals in there. It'll give them the ability to do the impossible to come out of that dead system. Something they can never do by force of will. Or by the way, by exercise of intellect. It is going to take the work of the Almighty God to bring you to Him. And it's going to take the work of the Almighty God to bring you out of Babylon if you're there as well. Then Proverbs 5, 3 to 6. And if you wanted to read the whole context, you might read on to the 13th verse. But I'm just going to pick out a few statements here. It says, Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold on hell. That word hell there is Sheol, the grave. Proverbs 7, 24 to 27. You can read more in this area as well besides just this statement. She hath cast down many wounded, yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. Proverbs 9 talks about her. It calls her there a foolish woman that's clamorous. She's simple. She knoweth nothing. She sitteth at the door of her house on a seat in the high places of the city to call passengers who go right on their ways. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. And as for him that wanteth understanding, she saith to him, Stolen waters are sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he knoweth not that the dead are there, and that her guests are in the depths of hell. And one other one you could probably take alongside this is the 47th chapter of Isaiah. There's a whole lot in Isaiah and Jeremiah that would go along with this idea. But listen to the language that's used here for Babylon. This is talking about physical Babylon, but I certainly believe this is also applicable to spiritual Babylon. 
Sit thou silent and get thee into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt be no more called the Lady of Kingdoms. This was a church that ruled over kingdoms. You realize that's what that's talking about spiritually? This is a church that was the Lady of Kingdoms, the Queen over kingdoms. What church has been a Lady of Kingdoms? That Dark Age church ruled over kingdoms. It ruled over most of Europe for a great bulk of its time and all the kingdoms that constituted Europe and some others as well. He goes on to say, I was wroth with my people. I have polluted mine inheritance and given them into thy hand. Thou didst show them no mercy. Upon the ancient hast thou very heavily laid thy yoke and thou saidest, I shall be a lady forever. I'll rule in this position as queen over these powers forever. So that thou did not lay these things to thy heart, neither didst thou remember the latter end of it. You know what the latter end of it is? You want to really be very literal about that? The latter end of this book tells her exactly what's going to happen to her. And she didn't lay that to heart. The latter end of the Babylonish church is right in the latter end of this book. And she didn't lay it to heart. Do you realize that church had this book? And she had the book of Revelation in it? And she doesn't apply it to herself and doesn't understand that that's applied to her? Thou didst not lay these things to thy heart, neither dost thou remember the latter end of it. Therefore hear now this, thou that are given to pleasures that dwellest carelessly, that sayest in thy heart, I am, and none else beside me. Do you know what the word Catholic means? Universal. Universal. The only one. Yeah. I am the only church, and there is no other church beside me. That was not true after the church fell away. There was no one church. There was only one church as long as there was one head of the one church. And when the one head of the one church was removed, there was no longer just one church. goes on to say, I shall not sit as a widow... Neither shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come to thee in a moment. And one day, the loss of children and widowhood, they shall come upon thee in their perfection. That means completeness. For the multitude of thy sorceries and for the great abundance of thine enchantments, for thou hast trusted in thy wickedness. You know what that means? They trust in their political power. They trust in their connections with the civil power. That wicked relationship and those debauched methods that they use to keep power, they're trusting in that. Nobody can overturn us. We've got too many connections, too many allies. That's what Israel thought when they were in a debauched state too. Thou hast said, none seeth me. Thy wisdom and thy knowledge, it hath perverted thee. And thou hast said in thy heart, I am and none else beside me. Therefore shall evil come upon thee. Thou shalt not know from whence it riseth and mischief shall fall upon thee. Thou shalt not be able to put it off and desolation shall come upon thee suddenly, which thou shalt not know. Hell followed along with the writer, and hell is the word for the grave. If Thanatos here is intended to be translated death, this might mean that a church in a state of spiritual death cannot bring life to its members. It can only put them in a spiritual grave in the place of the dead. If Thanatos here is intended to represent disease or pestilence, which I lean towards, it would mean almost the same thing. A spiritually diseased church will pass on that disease to all those it touches, resulting in their eventual spiritual death. Eventually, their only thing they can end up in is the grave. There's four different times in the book of Revelation that death is personified. It's put in a passage where it's given human qualities of some kind or some kind of personal qualities. Revelation 1.18 Jesus says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. As if death is something that can be opened up with a key. Well, spiritually it can, and so can the grave. Death can be overcome, and the grave can be opened up. You know what that means? Listen, this is where we misinterpret. Death and hell, there is not Thanatos and Gehenna. It's Thanatos and Hades, meaning death and the grave. 
the process of death, the fact that something can be killed, can be stopped cold by Jesus. Amen. He can stop you from ever dying. And if you have died and you're in the grave, he can deliver you from that condition. That's what it means he has the keys of death and hell. Translate it right. I have the keys of death and the grave. Meaning, I have the key that will keep you from dying. And I have the key that if you do die, I can open that state of death and bring you up out of the grave. That's pretty nice to know somebody has that kind of power, don't you think? That can not only prevent death, but can also reverse death. That's a wonderful friend to have. Revelation 6, 8 that we're reading right now is an example. And then Revelation 20, in the 13th verse and in the 14th verse, it personifies death when it says the sea gave up the dead which were in them and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. They judged every man according to his works and death and hell were cast in the lake of fire as if there's some tangible thing that can be cast in the lake of fire. It's personification to some extent. There's similar language to this that God uses in Isaiah 28, 18, when he says to Israel, your covenant with death shall be disannulled and your agreement with hell, that's Sheol, the grave, shall not stand. Power was given to them to kill the fourth part of the earth and the power that was given to them to kill the fourth part of the earth was made up of four different instruments that they used to carry out this killing of the fourth part of the earth. One of them is the sword. Very simple interpretation. Misusing the Bible as a rending and tearing instrument to hurt, destroy, and to enslave people rather than as a surgical tool of salvation. They use the Bible as a weapon against people to enslave them and to abuse them and to bring them into subjection to their order and their control. And then the second instrument that's used here is hunger. That's not hard to spiritualize either, is it? I imagine there were a lot of people in that day hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and they could find no place where that kind of righteousness could be produced. I imagine there were a lot of people in that day hungering and thirsting for the Word of God, like that famine we talked about here lately, for hearing the Word of the Lord. They were hungering for God's Word, and they could not find any of God's Word that would satisfy. There's some people that will eventually get satisfied with the wrong diet, but when somebody first is touched by the God of heaven, they are hungering for something meatier, stronger, richer. And unfortunately, in this church age, people had to settle for a very poor diet because that's all that was available. And they were being killed by hunger. They were being killed by the sword. They were being killed by death. That's how the King James translates it. And again, it's the same word thanatos, but I think it represents pestilence or disease. And Ezekiel 14 is one reason that we'll touch on in a few minutes, but there's several others. If this is disease or pestilence, it can happen two different ways. One of them is you can pass it off through direct contact. You are contagious because the disease you have is contagious. You give those ideas to somebody else and it infects their thinking. And then they give it to someone else and it infects their thinking. And finally, a whole bunch of people are carrying the contagion of that false doctrine. Polluted order, false doctrine, whatever might be included in that disease. The other way is spiritually, genetically passing it on. It's literally being passed on one generation to the next and accepted as right because there isn't anything else presented. This is the only way anyone's ever believed it. Of course it's right. That pollution gets passed from one generation to the next. Then they're killed with the beast of the earth. Now, beast usually in a symbolic context represents individuals with beastly spirits. Certainly, there were men with beastly spirits that were killing the people of God in these days. Sometimes they killed them for advantage, to retain power. They had to murder people so nobody would rise up against their power. Sometimes they killed them because they didn't want their teachings to spread. So they stopped them. And do you realize when some of the Bible translations were being made, when they burned those men at the stake, they hung their translations around their neck? 
They did not want those getting out. They wanted to make it very clear that any of these things they've written are going to be destroyed with them. So sometimes it was for the purpose of keeping their teachings from spreading. Sometimes it was for the purpose of maintaining power in other ways or material gain that they devoured the people of God like beasts. The fact that there's four of these might be significant because four or fourfold usually represents an entirety of something or all directions or everywhere you look, so to speak, like the four corners of the earth may represent the fact that the entire or all the areas of the church were affected by this, by this death and hell that entered in, by these instruments of death that were being used. may represent that there was no place to escape. Everywhere you look, this is going on. There's nowhere to go. There is, by the way, a descending spiritual effect to these judgments if you study them out. Starting with the sword, for example. Notice the order they're in. If you're only receiving injury and not healing from the word of God... That will create a hunger in you for something more. It'll create a spiritual hunger. It's not being satisfied because all you're getting is abuse. And if you're hungry and there's no spiritually wholesome food to satisfy you, you may choose to eat moldy bread or rotten meat just to survive. You know what that leads to? Disease, pestilence. You start eating that moldy food, that moldy bread, that rotten meat that the church is offering you. It's rotten and moldy because they've interjected things in it that don't belong. Here's the word of God with things that have been added to it that have, that have caused rottenness to enter into it or moldy conditions to enter into that bread. You start eating that, it'll make you sick. And thus you become in a disease state. And then once you get real sick, you'll become so weak in your body from the disease that when the beasts of the earth come after you, you can't even defend yourself. You know that's what happened? They were fed such a poor diet and became so diseased and weak spiritually that when men tried to devour them and to consume them and to abuse them, they didn't even have the strength spiritually to fight back. They didn't have the strength spiritually for a lot of reasons. All they'd ever eaten was moldy bread. They had been eating so much diseased food, they were weakened by it and couldn't even take a stand against the beasts of the earth. And when the beasts of the earth came, they devoured many of those people, if you want to spiritualize that. But once you get diseased, you may not have the strength to defend yourself. There are all kinds of passages. I'm just going to very quickly give you some examples where these four kinds of judgments are used or some combination of these, maybe adding one extra or a couple extra or maybe switching one of them out. But the clearest is one I already gave you in Ezekiel 14, 21 to 23, where it says, Thus saith the Lord God, how much more when I send my four sore judgments upon Jerusalem. Notice the four they're listed here. The sword, famine, the noisome beast, and pestilence. Those are exactly the same four, and if you use the word thanatos to represent pestilence here, they are exactly the same. To cut off from it man and beast, yet behold, therein shall be left a remnant that shall be brought forth. Did you hear that? That's the promise hidden in this. I'm going to bring all these terrible judgments against this false church, but in the middle of that terrible condition, in the middle of that Babylonian system, there's a remnant there that are going to come forth. That's those that come out when the call goes out, come out of her, my people. Both sons and daughters, behold, they shall come forth unto you, and you shall see their way and their doings. And you shall be comforted concerning the evil that I brought upon Jerusalem, even concerning all that I brought upon it. They shall comfort you when you see their ways and their doings, and you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, saith the Lord God. There's church historians that look at the condition of the church, and they say the church couldn't fall away. God wouldn't let his church fall away. Here he is talking about Israel and telling you, When Israel falls under all this judgment, it's going to be very clear, I did this. Why would you think the church would get off the hook when the church goes into darkness? 
Do you realize when Israel went to darkness, this was the judgment that fell on them. When the church went into darkness, why would you think the church would somehow get protections that Israel didn't? The same judgment fell on the church that fell on Israel. And the picture in this is that that remnant, when they come out, look and see their ways and their doings and realize there's something different about these people. Look at the way they do things. Look at the actions they're taking. And that's what will draw attention is their ways and their doings. By the way, it's not just their claims. It's not just saying, I believe. It's their ways and their doings. Our faith has to be alive enough that it translates out into our actions. The reason they're going to know this is the remnant people of God is because of their ways and their doings, how they operate and what they're doing. Deuteronomy 32, 24 to 26 mentions hunger, the teeth of beasts, and the sword and other things. Very closely related to this language. Jeremiah 15, 1 to 4 mentions death and the sword and famine. And down near the end of that passage, it says, I'll appoint over them four kinds, the sword to slay, dogs to tear, the fowls of heaven, and the beasts of the earth. That includes even more elements than the four that are mentioned here. Jeremiah 16, you could probably read from the first to the 13th verse, but in the fourth verse, it talks about the sword, famine, and making them meat for the fowls of heaven and the beasts of the earth. Very similar, again, to the same list that's here in Revelation. You know what all these are talking about? It's talking about when Israel, not the pagan false nations, when someone that was bearing the word of God, like the false church was, falls into apostasy, like the false church did, terrible judgments will fall on that church. That's what happened to Israel. To them were given the oracles of God. They were given the word of God, and they took that and apostatized, and great judgment fell on them. And that's exactly what the parallel here is with the judgment that fell on the church. Another example is Jeremiah 34, 17 to 20. In that one, the sword and pestilence and famine are mentioned. And then down near the end in the 20th verse, it talks about them being made meat under the fowls of heaven, the beasts of the earth. Ezekiel 5, 16 to 17 mentions famine and evil beasts and pestilence and the sword. Same language. You know why it's the same language? This is the method God uses when a people go into apostasy. These are the ways I'll punish them. These are the instruments of judgment I'll bring upon them. And if you spiritualize those instruments of judgment, you can see what it represents, like we talked about a few minutes ago. Then it said that they were given power over one-fourth of the earth. Now, I think that almost certainly refers to one-fourth of the population of the earth rather than the spatial area, than the geography of the earth. At one point, it's very likely the false church ruled, in some sense, over about a fourth of the civilized world. In the time of the 2nd century AD, which was when the Roman Empire was at its very highest peak, there were about 65 million people in the Roman Empire, according to estimates. That represented 21% of the entire earth that were under the Roman Empire in the 2nd century. They almost had a quarter of the earth that were part of that empire. You see how easy it'd be for this to parallel with the system that came into power? Especially when you include both the Western and Eastern Roman empires as the whole. As another example, in several different surveys I read, for example, in 2007, a Pew Forum survey that they made regarding the demographics of different religions in the United States, 23.9% of the United States claimed to be Catholic. That's almost a quarter of this nation. They did a comparison between two censuses they took in 1910 and in 2010. In the 1910 census, think about what a huge increase we've had in population. In the 1910 census, about 291 million Catholics were in the world. Do you realize that was 16.6% of the whole world? 
Now, I hear people once in a while say that church has taken so many blows in the 20th century, it's shrinking. In 2012, one of the surveys they did of the Catholic Church numbered their number at 1,228,000,000 plus, which represents 17.4% of the world population. In other words, even with all the things that happened in the last century, the Catholic Church has potentially increased another percent. So the false church kills with the sword, wrongly applying the word of God, and it kills with hunger. That means there is not enough truth there to satisfy the soul. It kills with death or pestilence or disease, depending on how you translate this, spiritual death. It kills with the beasts of the earth. And if you wanted to broaden the meaning of that out just from individual men who had beastly spirits, let me make it even broader. The beastly systems of this earth were what they used to back up their power and to carry out their judgment. When that ecclesiastical power wanted somebody to be persecuted, they would call on the nations that were under their sway. That's how any of the persecutions that happened on a large scale that killed a lot of people, in terms of people that were resisting that church, were killed. They called on the civil power to go hunt certain people down or to burn them alive or whatever. It wasn't very often the church itself doing it. They instigated the civil powers to carry out what they wanted. We must be the polar and exact opposite of that church. Now just reverse all these instruments of death and think about what that means. When God restores the church, we will have all four of those powers reversed in a way that will benefit the people of God rather than to harm them. Do you realize the sword is an instrument God uses for deliverance? We're to bring life with the sword by cutting away the spiritual flesh. Hebrews 4.12 that we quote all the time about the word of God being quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The sword of the word of God is an instrument of the church, but it's there to cut the flesh off of you so you can live. And there is going to be a church wielding the sword that way that will free people from the state of death that they're in spiritually. Then we are to feed the hungry. Instead of killing them with hunger, we're to feed the hungry. Jesus told Peter to feed my sheep, didn't he? And he didn't mean to sit them down to dinner at your house. That's a nice way to feed the sheep if you can feed them physically. But that's not what he was talking about. He was talking about feeding them spiritually. And Jeremiah 3.15 makes this statement, I will give you pastors according to my own heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. That's how we feed the people of God, with knowledge and understanding. And then in opposition to the spiritual disease that they keep passing down generation to generation or through contagion, We're to preach the word and call on the power of the Spirit to free these spiritually diseased individuals and those that are in a state of spiritual death. That's what those verses meant last time that I read about Jesus freeing those that are in spiritual prison houses. They're imprisoned by the disease. That disease has taken over their thinking and they're captive to a disease that they don't even know has a hold of them. And they think this is just the norm. This is how it's supposed to be. This is what it's supposed to feel like. These beliefs are the only way that you can believe, but they don't realize they're in a prison house. We're to free the prisoners. And the reason we know that we can do that is because the head of the church has the keys of death and the grave, the keys of death and hell. And then finally, said that they killed them with the beasts of the earth, didn't they? You want to have an opposite for that? Do you realize that a church that's truly operating in a new covenant capacity is killing our own beasts? We're killing our beast. Proverbs 9.2 says about that church that she hath killed her beasts. You know what that means? That fallen nature within is being killed out. That fallen nature within is being overcome. There's a difference between killing other people and killing yourself. We need to kill ourselves. And I'm not talking about suicide. I'm talking about you spiritually dying out, but you can't kill other people spiritually. 
That's the difference between that church and the church of the living God. And we've got a responsibility to protect the people of God from the beasts of this earth as well. They can carry out some of the beautiful pictures in the Bible, one of those being the picture in the 15th chapter of Genesis when Abraham made that sacrifice and he cut each of those animals in pieces and laid each piece. That was a method that they used. Laid each piece to the side. And then he stood in the midst of those animals before God came down and accepted that sacrifice. And as the fowls of the air came down and tried to feed on that sacrifice, Abraham stood there with his staff and beat back the fowls of the air so they couldn't feed on the sacrifice. This church is a sacrifice. This is an altar. There's a scent of a sweet sacrifice coming up from this church. And if I have it within my power and God allows it, I'm going to stand here until I fall with a staff in my hand beating back the fowls of the air from this place. Pray that God gives us the strength. Pray that God gives us the knowledge and wisdom to be able to stand. Like Paul, when he made that odd statement in 1 Corinthians 15, if after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. Paul wasn't talking about fighting with animals out somewhere. Paul was talking about the fact that those beastly spirited men had come against him and against the word of God, and he had stood firm and fought against them and pushed them back. There was a church in Ephesus because Paul stood and pushed back those beastly spirits until God established his church, and God used him to do that, and God's going to use a ministry to do that again in our day.